Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Loving on Another, was given on February 19th, 2017 by Bethany Shea in the series Up, In, Out, On Love. So, um, so as, you know, after we did that town hall gathering and we looked at uh, our areas of up, in, and out, loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbor, we decided as a church just to go through each area a little bit more individually. So last week we looked at loving God, and this week we're looking at loving one another. Next week we're going to look at loving our neighbor, and next week is also the start of um, like the Sunday right before Ash Wednesday, and then we get into Lent. And so it's kind of like a transitional season in the life of our church anyway. So next Sunday when we look at loving our neighbor, we're going to look at um, the importance of of going into a time of Lent where we're gonna really be focused on prayer and focused on the spiritual disciplines as a way to hone in um, that, that sense of abiding on the vine, living with Christ on the vine, so we can then continue into um, caring for our neighbors in that way where God is the one that's empowering us and we're not trying to muster up our own strength to love our neighbors. Um, instead, it comes from this place of abiding with, with being with Christ on the vine. Um, about six months after Jason and I got married, um, we, we moved to Orange County. And we moved there to go to school at Vanguard University, uh, which is a small Christian liberal arts college. And we were living in married student housing, which is like, it was basically a bunch of newlyweds living together in these dorms that were across the freeway from the campus. And it was like this old pay-by-the-hour motel that they converted into, <laughs> into like newlywed dormitory living. <laughs> it was super sketchy. Like I don't think they changed the carpet or any. It was bad. But we were so excited to live there as newlyweds with a bunch of other Christians around us who were also young marrieds. And we were all trying to figure out like, how do you pay bills and how do you buy your groceries and cook for yourself and study for exams and try to work and all those sorts of things and learn how to be married all together. So it was an interesting time for sure. Jason was studying to get his degree in business because he went through a fire explorer program and wanted to become a firefighter. And, uh, and I was working at Claim Jumper, it's a restaurant down there, and I was working at Starbucks and um, and he got a job as an EMT to do like uh, transporting people from, um, from nursing homes to the emergency rooms because of heart attacks and strokes. Um, and then some people he would transport, he would be on calls for 5150s with taking people to the mental hospitals and making sure that people were cared for in that transportation process. Around this time, Jason and I were like starting to make some new friends in married student housing, some new newlywed people as well. Um, and it was mostly shallow and, and like kind of immature conversations that uh, were built around our new permission from God to have lots of sex all of a sudden. <laughs> so that's kind of what our conversations were like with these newly married people as well. Uh, but nothing of like true substance yet. Nothing of like, oh, this is what friendship looks like. Um, and one night, like just a few weeks after school started, um, after Jason got his job, he woke me up in the middle of the night and he said, Bethany, I'm having a heart attack. You have to take him to the hospital. And so we rushed to the hospital and, and, and we get in there and they, they check his blood pressure and it's like out of control, off the charts, and they strap an EKG on him and they, and to see if he's really having a heart attack. And just a, a few moments later, his breathing started to calm down and 
it was becoming more calm and the doctors explained at that moment to us what a panic attack was because before then we had never known what a panic, panic attack was and night after night what was from weeks that turned into months Jason would wake me up in this complete panic believing totally convinced that he was having a heart attack or having a stroke and we would rush to the ER and we would either spend our time in the parking lot and just praying together and meditating together and like calming down or we would go into the ER um, but it happened it happened pretty regularly uh, he eventually asked me to drop him off at um, at, a, at a mental the mental hospital and leave him there and just say we're done we, we, we're not gonna keep going because this is too hard and towards the beginning of this really horrible season of the first year of our marriage um, these new friends like they circled around us they committed to seeing us through this season however long it would take they, they, they knew it could take forever, but they like, they came around us and they committed to praying over us and they committed to taking us to the movies and having dinners together. This one guy that we didn't necessarily connect with, there was uh, 10 of us together. There was five couples, including Jason and I. One of the couples we didn't connect with very well, but that one guy, he, he just said, you know, Jason, if you need anything, anything at all, call me for, for anything and I will be there. And so this one day, Jason was having this, um, he was feeling super anxious, and so he was driving to my work on the freeway to see me, and he had a panic attack while driving and couldn't drive any longer and pulled over. And he called me, and I'm like, babe, I can't get you. I, I can't get off of work. And so he called this friend, and this friend drove all the way over to where he was on the freeway. He picked him up and drove him home. This guy's name was Dan. And Dan is the same guy that we, like a few years later, we started this church with. And so these are the people that surrounded us and loved us and cared for us. Another couple um, are some of our dearest friends in the whole world. They're like our soulmate friends. And um, these friends during that season, they revealed God's love to me more than anything else could have. I was raised in the church. I knew all about the Bible stories and all about God's love for me and I knew all the Bible answers and everything was so clear in so many ways but I never really understood or experienced God's palpable love for me until that friendship, until those people committed their lives to Jason and I during the most awful season that we had ever experienced. And my faith was forever changed because of them. So today we're gonna to look at what it means to love one another, like what it means to be friends as the body of Christ together. And I wanted to actually open it up. I don't know if any of you have stories that are similar to that where you felt God's love because of another person who's committed themselves, the, themselves to you or, or walked with you in one season or another where you felt God's love. Does anybody have anything like that that's happened? Yeah, Roger. Wallace. Wallace, tell me about what Wallace. Wallace is always there. Yep. Yeah. He's a, Wallace is, he's an amazing person. Just, yeah. That's a good one. Anybody else? Yeah, Marta.
Goodness. Yeah. people stories of where Christians yeah um some of you know them Mark and Valerie um mm-hmm. when we were newly married we lived in the same complex apartments that they were managing and right I think it was when I was still just in school and he was working and we didn't have a lot of money and I babysat Julian one night and he yeah. gave me a hundred bucks and I was like what's this for <laughs> we we were blessed by somebody mm-hmm. who lives in California and now we're passing it on I and love that Right, right. Oh, that's so beautiful. Good. Anything else? Yeah, Ariel. experience God's love through them. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, we couldn't work through things. I there was just I knew there were like a couple of women I could call, and then they would just be there. And uh, so it was cool. I mean, that was just like a lifesaver. And then uh, when we recently had the experience of leaving that, it was neat to. I mean, you know, you have those moments where you just sit with friends and you're saying bye, and you're trying to communicate to them. You're like, I just don't think you know what you meant to our marriage. But it's like, and then they look at you and they say, no, I don't think you know what you meant to our marriage, you know? And yeah. To see what God is doing all that. So good. Good. I love it. That's how it works for us when we left. Yeah. We had a really good, um, a couple that basically adopted us when yeah. we first moved there. And, I mean, they were so intentional with us. It was ridiculous. I mean, we actually, there were times where I was like, I just don't get along with them. <laughs> but, but they actually continued to be intentionally friendly with us. Yeah. Intentionally pressing in. And there were times where I was like, I don't get them. They don't get me. But somehow, because we're in this body together, and we keep working it out together, and we keep dealing with our issues, yeah. it was like very redeeming. And I think there's still, you know, probably some of our best friends they saved and made your contact. The wife helped us move out here. She drove with me for 12 hours to get here, help us unpack, flew home. It's just like those kind of people, like, you don't, it's not like where you click instantly. It's more of an intentional relationship of right. continual giving and right. um, continual pressing in even though you don't get each other and kind of confessing okay. your faults and moving through that stuff together. Yep. Really yeah, yeah. And sometimes those friendships aren't, like, you aren't necessarily clicking, but it is that that commit that commitment towards another person or people, um, and that 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 glue is Jesus Christ. That that thing that no matter if they're my soulmate type of friend, like oh my gosh, we're on every level the same, or it's just not at all. When Jesus in the is in the middle of it, it's like nothing else is is as important any longer because there's this this commonality that you have that. That overextends beyond anything else. Cool, you guys. So, um, we're going to look at what the Bible talks about with loving one another today. Uh, and, you know, this, is, this church is, is amazing. You guys are always up for hanging out with each other and giving of each other to, um, giving your space to each other. And, um, and I just, I love that. And I want to see us even grow even in more love towards each other and, and find opportunities to, to, to press into that even more. But last week we looked at what it meant to, to love God. And, and if you can recall, we had the whiteboard up here and we looked at the 10 commandments and how Jesus says like, I am meant to follow my father. I am obeying the commands of my father. So if you obey me, you're obeying the commands of my father. And how Jesus was a, a first century Jewish rabbi who followed the law of Moses and followed the Torah and followed um, God's laws that, that God put in place. And so we looked at what it means to follow the Ten Commandments um, today as, as we follow God. So... Um, those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus, 
and and as a, as like the ruler of our life, the the terminology that the Bible used back in the day was Lord, which was a very political term because it was kind of anti Caesar. Um, and today we don't have that rule. We don't have like that that sort of language, so it doesn't mean as much to us today necessarily. A while back ago, Shane Claiborne, like nine years ago, Shane Claiborne came out with a book called Jesus for President, which is kind of the idea that like. Our ruler today is a, is a president to some degree or another, and, and Jesus needs to be even above that, goes beyond that. And the same thing goes true for the people back then. But uh, Jesus was considered a rabbi. A rabbi was like an expert or a teacher in the law of Moses. Um, he would have been seen as, as an expert, and every rabbi was seen that way. Every rabbi would have a group of followers called Talmudim or disciples and that just um, it just means that it was the people that the rabbi had chosen to follow after him and if a rabbi had chosen a person to follow after him as his disciple then that rabbi was declaring that they believed that that person could be exactly like the rabbi himself that that person could do and be and behave um, and act the same as the rabbi eventually. It would be a huge honor, obviously, to be chosen. And at that point, only the best and the brightest were ever chosen. About uh, three years ago, we did, a, we did a series on the disciples of Christ. Uh, we looked at every single disciple and what the Bible reveals about those disciples and what it meant to be a disciple during that time. So if you ever want to go on our podcast and look up about three years ago, you can learn more about what it meant to, for a disciple and a rabbi. But being a disciple wasn't something that you can like clock in and clock out of, right? It wasn't like you had to get 30 hours or 160 hours or whatever, and then you'd graduate and you'd be considered a rabbi or something like that. It wasn't that sort of thing. It was actually like a, a whole life endeavor. It was a way of life. It was um, an order of life. So it was never considered like some sort of side project or some sort of um, self-improvement trial to be a better person or to make better decisions with your life. It was meant to be this thing that you committed to for, for all time. And the commitments for a disciple of Jesus then and, and for us today, because if, if you are a follower, of, if you have committed your life to Jesus, then you're considered a disciple, um, is number one, the commitment is that you would be you would be with Jesus. You are committing to be with Jesus. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at what it meant to um, be on the vine, that Christ is the vine and we are the branches and we're meant to abide in the vine, that we're not meant to be disconnected or like fused on for Sundays and then fuse off for the rest of the week. It's all flowing in and out of each other. And that what we do flows out of this power that Jesus gives us through the Holy Spirit that lives within. So that's one of the commitments, to be with Jesus. As a disciple, you also are committing to become like Jesus. And to become like Jesus includes this radical change. It includes a transformation of your life. Um, and it begins with the sense of admitting or confessing that you need Jesus. Just saying, okay, Lord, I, I'm admitting that I can't do this by myself. I'm not meant to save my own self. I can't save my own self or do this by myself. Um, it means that you repent of your sins, and repent just literally means like you've been going one way down this road towards a life of 
whatever you've been following or doing that's not in the purposes of God's kingdom, and you change your way and you go back towards the purposes of God and God's kingdom. So that just means like a change of, of direction. And then the third, a disciple um, commits to doing what Jesus did. So that means that we'd get into the Bible. We learn about Jesus through the scriptures, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. And so we get to learn about what Jesus did. And if we are his disciples, what we do as well, just as Jesus did. And Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. He, the kingdom of God means the purposes of God. So the ways that God wants us to live in the world. And then we get to continue on as disciples um, to continue God's kingdom work in the world of love and justice, um, of mercy and kindness uh, in each of our contexts, wherever God has placed you in, in your jobs and families and, and um, friendships, everywhere that you are, you get to be a part of the purposes of God. So within this, this form of discipleship, Jesus kind of begins this whole new way of being human in the world. Um, and we see in scripture that there are, there are two types of people that follow Jesus. There's the crowds who are in it because they're curious and they want to see like what what's the next miracle that Jesus is going to do. And the Bible talks about the crowds following Jesus as like, they're not committed to each other. They're not committed to Jesus, but they're super curious about what's going to happen next. And then the other ones are the Talmudim, which are about a hundred men and women who followed after Jesus as his disciples. And then Jesus out of those chose 12 followers that he would then do life with really intentionally that they would walk together in every area and today we don't just have those two categories of the crowds that are curious or um or you know just disrespectful or anything like that and we don't just have the disciples we also have the christians and christian is such a broad term and as we looked at a few weeks ago um that term christian was given to the followers of jesus as a derogatory term as a way of like oh you guys are just little christs aren't you and and eventually they adopted that term but today in american context for so many people christians are just known as good churchy people and it's kind of created in a lot of ways is this social standing it's become a social obligation or social sort of um jesus sort of life but jesus didn't come to this earth to make social christians right he didn't come here and live and then die on the cross and then resurrect from the dead to create some sort of club like rotary so we can all have something that we're working towards together because it's a good thing to do jesus came to make committed disciples. And so we, as the church, we need Christians to become disciples. Because there's many Christians who have given their life over to Jesus, saying, like, I need you in my life, but then not actually seeking the path of discipleship in their everyday life. And I, I know I've been there before, and I've, I'll probably be there at some season again, and, and I'll need you guys to be like, come on, Beth, let's keep... I want to keep discipling you as you disciple me. And it's this continual journey with Jesus that we do together. So Catalyst's vision statement, and it's kind of like what, whenever I look at scripture, I kind of look at it through the lens of our vision statement, is that together we are disciples of Jesus Christ, um, living out the gospel of God's transforming love in Humboldt County and beyond. And so as disciples, we seek to love God. We seek to love one another. 
and we seek to love our neighbors. And if we see Jesus obeying the Father, then that means we also are to obey God in all things. Um, and it's not some sort of legalism sort of thing that we saw last week. It is, it is for the good of what God created us to be and to do in the world. Um, and so, and if you missed last week, you can listen to the podcast and get a, get a feel for what we talked about. But, but the rest of the time, I just want to talk about what it means to love one another. And we're going to really have it mostly as a discussion, um, kind of doing a Lectio Divina sort of a way with the scripture. Um, but first, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 13. John um, was one of the disciples that walked with Christ. Uh, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> I love that. I love that sense of like ownership that he takes of that. He's just like, yeah, totally. I am. I I'm the disciple that that Jesus loved, and I'm just gonna write it down in there. <laughs> uh, and he wrote he wrote this gospel after almost almost all of his friends had been killed. Almost all of the disciples had been murdered and and killed um, for following Jesus, and he he lived a very long life, um, which was which was a blessing. But eventually, towards the end of his life, he was like, okay, so I need to write down what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced, so that way the next generation can have it. And I, I, I don't know if he realized that we would be reading it today, but he says in John 13, verse 34, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, now turn with me to 1 John, which is in the back of the Bible. 1 John was like a, kind of like the addendums to the, the book of John, the Gospel of John that he wrote. And this is, um, he goes deeply into what love looks like in 1 John. And um, we'll be in chapter 4. In this Bible, it's number 1230. Page 1230. So I'm going to read this through, and then we're going to sit with it for a few moments. And then we'll read it through again and, and just kind of talk about what comes up for you in this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, 
and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So we'll take a few moments of just silence. Would somebody like to read it a second time? Amen. Amen. So what, what comes up from that for you? What are your what are your initial thoughts when you were reading that or anything anything that God is placing on your heart? teaching <laughs> totally what else comes up love is not defined by our love for God but by God's love for us yep 
Totally. Think about There's only 15 verses that we read, but love is mentioned 27 times. So, it, and, and what, what Russ was saying is so true. Like this, John isn't trying to convince us that we just need to love God more or love our brothers and sisters more. He's trying to convince us that God loves us so abundantly that the only response that we can do is to love as he first loved us. It's to receive that love from God, like it's, you know, it says in verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And then we get to respond. What else came up? Yeah, Tamara. For me, I don't know, it's kind of like the uh, who is my brother discussion. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I need it, but that's like the first thing that comes to my mind is like, well, but who is my brother? Is that everybody? Or is that just Christians? Or, you right. know, <laughs> you know, maybe there's just a special category of people that I have to love. And, right. You know, and then God will help me do that because, you know, somehow, because I don't have to love everyone. Right. But I don't think, I don't know, I mean, it's like he sent his son into the world, you know, he didn't send his son into, like, just a select group of people. Right. It is a hard teaching. Well, and I think, I, I think God has given each of us hearts towards specific people, and we, we don't have hearts towards like every single group of people. Um, I mean, we are supposed to love every single group of people, but the way that you connect with um, somebody who's struggling with mental illness and the way another person connects really well with somebody who's homeless, another person really connects well with, with um, young families or the elderly or all of those things, I think God has given us those capabilities to be really strategic in the giftings that he's given us. But that, does, that doesn't mean that we ignore everybody or that we are condemning. Obviously, love also it has to speak in truth. Like we don't just, love isn't just like throwing things under the carpet or trying to like let things um, go because we don't want to have a hard conversation because it might not feel very loving. 
it's also like loving means that we're committed to people and being able to speak truth into their lives that can be really challenging sometimes too and ex and to receive that truth into our own lives what were you going to say Ariel? that makes me think of it almost in a different Yeah, Russ. The basis of love. The basis of love is innocence. And if you accept your own innocence and don't accept the lie about yourself that you're not, love is easy. Mm. But if you have a doubt about your innocence, love is really hard. Right. That's good. That's really good. Yeah, John. That's really close to what I was kind of getting when she was that statement about like, being you know, hmm. kind of reminding us who we are mm -hmm. as believers. And it seems like there might have been some doubt about what you think we And kind of consistently reiterate if you're loving or if you're in love with God, then you're in your spirit. Good. Uh, it's it's really hard to love other people if we're not if we haven't accepted the love that God has for us if we haven't truly believed that we are lovable and that um, that God thinks you're worthy of that love and is constantly giving that over to you if we can't actually see that as true for ourselves and receive that for ourselves it's really hard to see that same love in other people um, and so it's almost like a an accountability in a way what were you gonna say Jay? I 
What do you think, Russ? You lie about yourself. You lie about yourself. You lie about yourself. Okay. You forget that when when Christ came here, this that's the first visible representation of God. Mm-hmm. And that when he came, you died with him. You rose with him. Mm-hmm. You're innocent. Mm-hmm. And when when you start doubting your innocence, then you can't love. Mm-hmm. But you are innocent. I mean, people worry about judgment and all those things. Christ came. You were, des- you were designed innocent. That's how he designed you. So that's how you are. That's good. That's really true because it makes me think of like um, what they say about how you treat other people is a projection of how you feel about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if you believe that you know you are somehow a bad sinner person, you're going to treat other people like that. Right. And that's the kind of identity you reveal that you have to have that true identity in Christ. Otherwise, you're going to, I mean, you still have yourself, but it's hard to accept that innocence because you know you still have the saying this is this is love i set aside everything that i was and i came for you 
And so when we think wow. about how rooted we are in our identity, everything is, when we do things for other people, still it's always that, like, what's it going to cost me? Right. He's saying to show, like, the love that I'm talking about. You set aside who you are, your identity. Everything that defines you, you set that aside for me. Mm. And you engage in my love. And it's, you know, I think that's where he says it. That's how the world's going to know you. When right. you're willing to set aside everything you are. That's good. It's a good teaching. Seriously. Part of, um, I mean, it, yeah, that, that first thing that we, that we are learning to be all the time is learning about our innocence, learning about um, the love that God has for us and that it will shape us to be different people in the world uh, when we can grab a hold of that identity that God has for us. Um, and part of being in friendship and relationship with each other, especially as Christians, is that when you, are, when you have accepted that love into your life, then you are able to then help wash away some of the damaging identities that the world has painted on our brothers and sisters. The, the, the things that we have piled upon our backs that are the lies that we are convinced by that say that we aren't good enough or we don't measure up or Jesus couldn't possibly love somebody like me or my sin is too great to be set free from. All of those things that have been piled upon yourself and piled upon other people, we're able to wash away by our love for each other because it's a love that came from God. And God uses us for those things. Um, There's a verse in Matthew uh, where Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount and he's uh, preaching about what the... the, um, what God's law looks like now through Christ. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, uh, he says, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So I think so often we're like we're the kinds of people that wait, like if we've been hurt by somebody, we wait until they come and ask for forgiveness. Ask until, wait until they do something to make it right. And what, what Jesus is saying here is that you already know that you've been forgiven. You already know that you're loved. So step into this and show your brother or sister how forgiven and how loved they are as well. You get to be the example of Christ to your brother and sister in this moment. Don't wait for them. It's our responsibility to, set, to step into that reconciliation. And I think so often it's hard for us to love each other because we have things against each other. We see churches after churches splitting over the most menial things because we can't come together um, in that sense of love. We have too many differences. Um, and before we go into our time of worship, uh, you know, it's, it, oftentimes anger in the church is, is because um, it comes from a place of love for self. And the love for being right, like we, we want the power in the argument, we want the, we want the answers for everything, and it's hard for us to lay down our own life or lay down our sense of self aside um, for the sake of God. And oftentimes, like this love of self is hidden under the banner of, well, I'm just loving God, or I just need to speak this truth, I need to uphold this truth at all costs. And so if it splits us apart, I'm at least holding up the truth, and that's what matters most. Um, Almost like the sense that God is not capable of holding the truth for God's self. Like we have to do it for him. But the gospel of Jesus, it sets us free from these sorts of pursuits. 
Um, and, and we recognize here that we have so many differences. We just do. We are a church made up of different people from different backgrounds and different faith perspectives. Um, but we've come together in love and in respect as brothers and sisters of Jesus who gave his life on the cross for us so we can have life abundant. So at Catalyst, we have this, this guiding philosophy, and we've talked about it before, of opinions, beliefs, and convictions. And it's just part of this thing is to help us continually remain in the vine as brothers and sisters, seeing that we are all connected through Jesus Christ. We're all a part of that same vine. Um, so the first thing would be opinions. We, we see opinions, beliefs, and convictions. And opinions would be like, you all have millions of them, thousands of them. Um, and, and we, we take our opinions and then we put it into church context. So, um, you know, when I was in high school, I took all my CDs and burnt them if they didn't have a cross on them or something like that because I couldn't listen to bad music or whatever. So, like, that would be an opinion. We aren't going to, like, make you burn your CDs. Like, is all, is all music and all art gods or can I only listen to Christian music? That would be an opinion. Am I allowed to watch rated R movies? That's an opinion. Like, you all have your differences there. Beliefs are something that we hold more dear, right? Like we've maybe studied through an area of theology at length. We may have um, strong leanings towards something. We may have Bible verses and things to back up our understandings of God and who we are as people. But at Catalyst, we've chosen not to allow our, our differing understandings of scripture and theology and, and those sorts of things to break up our fellowship with each other. It doesn't mean we can't have good conversations and like really get into it and have our arguments in love and, and respect, but we aren't going to like break apart if, you know, you guys are just like, well, we need to be, we need to be like the seven day literal creationists. And then the other half of the church is like, I think God used evolution over billions of years. Why are we making a big deal out of this? So those sorts of things can be huge issues in Christianity, but we are choosing not to make that into the forefront it's always good to have those conversations. Are, do we baptize infants? Or is that something that people are supposed to choose once they become an adult? You know, that's a belief. The convictions are what we consider the non-negotiables. It's where we don't really budge on here at our church. And, and it doesn't mean that everybody has to agree with them to be a part of our church. It's just, this is what Catalyst agrees with. And so before we go into our time of communion, um, I wanted to read through those. Can we get them on the screen? So, can somebody read about the resurrected Jesus for us, please? Anybody? Thanks, Ariel. Affirm the oh. divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of the true and God, fully man and fully God. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus transforms the human heart, mm -hmm. and without the restorative work of Jesus Christ's teaching, life, death, and the cross, in resurrection, we could not find freedom from the bondage of our rebellion, brokenness, or sin. We understand that the life marked by confession and repentance continues to free us. Good. You can keep reading that part. Jesus meant everything he said, and we are meant to live out those words today. Following Jesus is a daily, moment by moment, Choice of surrendering to his way. Good. And the next is there an, <clears throat> about people. Can somebody read about people? Yeah, thanks, Ariel. People's rebellion against God severed their relationship with God. 
the image of God, we need the diversity in each other to know God more fully and live the life God intends for us. Because of Imago Dei in all, the Bible teaches equality and dignity for all is a non-negotiable. Regardless of gender, race, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, or a myriad of other things that we use to oppress others, all need to be loved, not just Good. About the church. Does somebody want to read this? Church is messy, but it is through the local and global right of Christ that we are shaped into and encouraged toward or possibly to advocate for and tangibly love for marginalized and oppressed. Through our messiness, the church has possibilities to bring the shalom of God to the world. Shalom is the idea of a world as God originally intended it to be, a place of fullness, completeness, and peace. Shalom is bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. The church exists as a community that shares economic resources with each other and the needy. The church is made up of people who love each other, break bread and pour wine together, baptize each other, forgive, restore, and challenge each other in obeying the call Good. About the Bible. The scriptures are an inspired liberation narrative, a story or collection of people's encounters with the living God, which invites us to encounter God, a God who redeems us from sin and empire and asks us to make a difference about the injustices in our world. We find in the Bible that from the very beginning of time, God has passionately desired for God's people to find shalom with God, themselves, each other, and creation. We find ourselves in the midst of this story of hope and redemption. Anybody last one about faith? Leaving is sometimes difficult. And the more we learn and experience God, the more questions we have. We acknowledge the responsibility of loving God in our lives. And a while at times we have to question Is that the end of it? Fantastic. Thanks, you guys. So we come together. It's part of what we do. We, um, we come together every week to worship Jesus together because God is so worthy, so worthy of our worship. Uh, we come together every week to take communion and to be reminded of Christ's death and that he has come to set us free and to live into a different way of life, the way of the kingdom. And we come together as people to learn how to love well, love each other well. Um, and so we, we do this every week. We gather, we worship, we hear from the word of God, and we learn to love each other well. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, journey together, live different, and provoke change.